So it's time for another thought experiment. Imagine you're in a supermarket with a cart full of groceries, approaching the cashier's desk and you hear a fire alarm. What do you do? Do you run for your life or kindly ignore uh, that message? Probably the second one. But now imagine you see some person. As soon as they hear the alarm, they drop everything and start to run. What do you do now? Probably the outcome is kind of different because you at least question if you should run. And what if that person was your boss or maybe the, the smartest guy in your office? <laughs> Would that influence your decision? Probably yes. And uh, and now what route do you take? How do you escape that building? Do you go through the nearest exit at backside of, of the shop or maybe try and seek escape through the entrance of the shop that you've entered with? Or let's imagine a different situation. For many years you go to the same office which has five staircases and you always take the same one. And now there's a fire alarm. What are the chances you're gonna take a different one? All of these things that impact our decisions during the evacuation, the important decisions. If we want to run, if we start evacuating, if we inform others, which route do we choose? How do we escape? All of these things are impacted by things called biases and heuristics, mind shortcuts for taking decisions on the fly with your intuition, not, not with your conscious thinking. And this is the thing I want to talk today with Dr. Mike Kinsey from Arup in China. Mike has a long experience in researching the cognitive biases and their impact on decision-making processes in evacuation. And he also tried to move that into the field of evacuation modeling and also to the um, engineering practices, how biases impact the way how we design safety systems. And all of these things are, are what we're going to discuss into today's episode. The idea for the episode came from a paper of Mike, uh, in which he and his team investigated multiple different cognitive biases that can occur in the evacuation process. And to know them all, to list them, I must refer you to the paper. You're not going to find it out in this episode. It would be just too long and possibly maybe even boring to just hear one after another. However, we picked some of the most impactful of them and, and discussed them in depth in here. The focus of the episode is, is not on what the particular biases are, but why these biases matter how should we be aware of these biases existing and how do they interfere with the evacuation process and in a way with our modeling. And I think that's a powerful thing to learn that such things as cognitive biases exist and they have such a tremendous impact on the evacuation process. So I, I hope I've built your expectations high because this is a really good one. I hope you enjoy it and yeah. Let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wengzinski and I will be your host. Hello and welcome everybody. Today I'm here with Dr. Mike Kinsey, who's with Arup in China. 
Uh, Mike is an expert on evacuation and pedestrian dynamics and decision making. So I'm I'm really happy to finally have a guest from this part of the fire science. Hi, Mike. Hi, how's it going? Hey, thanks, man. I'm great. I, I get to get used to these time differences, uh, having podcast guests from all over the world. However, it's it's <laughs> very exciting. Um, Mike, I brought you here because uh, one of your research subjects was was really interesting to me, and and I found it absolutely fascinating to to think in a way that that you have presented in your papers, and and I mean your research on on cognitive biases in decision-making processes, in, in the evacuation process. But not only that, because you, you also expand that to uh, fire science and engineering. So um, to give a background to the listeners, the, the work of Mike comes from a field that, that we can call behavioral economics, which, um, which investigates biases, heuristics, and decision-making processes. And, and Mike actually has taken the research from this field and adopted it to decision-making processes within the evacuation processes to understand how people take these decisions based on on these biases and heuristics during uh, the evacuation process. And yeah, I find it really astounding to, to look at, uh, at this uh, from, from this kind of perspective. So, so Mike, what, what made you pursue this, this research? What was the, um, how did it start actually? <laughs> yeah, so I think the, the idea came about through being recommended um, a book to read um, by uh, Daniel Kahneman, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, um, who's a um, psychologist, but he's won a Nobel Prize in um, behavioral economics. And he's the grandfather of behavioral economics. Um, and after reading it, I thought, well, this is, this is really fascinating. I think we could apply this to fire evacuations. Um, this team comprised of uh, Professor Steve Gwynn at Movement Strategies in the UK, Dr. Max Kennetetter, um at the NRC in uh, Canada, and Dr. Erica Kuligowski, who was at NIST, who's now at RMIT. Um, and we decided how can we, uh, we, we looked at this and we thought, well, this is a really interesting subject. And if people can make biases in all manner of fields of their lives, then they can make biases um, during fire evacuations. And that's what got us started looking at this topic. Yeah, when, when doing the podcast, I meet people who take uh, different research items from all over the, f- the world of science and implement it in fire science and technology. And uh, that's usually where the greatest ideas are born. So I'm, I'm really happy that you take in the um, behavioral economics and, uh, and implemented that in, in analyzing the decision-making processes. And when you consider evacuation, it's, it's obvious that the movement of people will be driven by the decisions they take and the, the, the route they choose, the exits they choose. So absolutely, the, the movement will be impacted by the decision-making process. Trained as fire safety engineers, you learn that uh, there is this pre-movement time, there's the movement time, and both are as important in, in the evacuation processes, and uh, both will impact the, the overall time to exit the building. S- so this um, decision-making process will have a tremendous impact over the uh, whole evacuation time required for the building. Is, is that a few that you share? Yeah, I think, um, I think if we contextualize this as a bit of a problem, and when we look at decision-making, um, looking at the evacuation process is probably one of the most complicated things we can do in fire engineering. 
um, because it's not something we can easily measure. We, it's very hard to measure certain aspects of why people make decisions. Um, you can ask them, but quite often they won't know why they make a certain decision. Um, what compounds the issue is sometimes people think they do know why but actually they don't. Um, and one of the reasons is that, as we've highlighted, um, and, you know, based on Daniel Kahneman's work, um, your brain functions as if employing two uh, independent but uh, collaborative um, types of thinking. That's the system one automatic system, which happens in the subconscious or the non-conscious. Um, and we use that all the time. And then when we need to focus on something, um, we use the reflective system, um, which we're aware of. Uh, but that takes a lot more effort. So we naturally prefer to operate in this auto, almost automatic mode. Um, so quite often we don't know why we make certain decisions. Um, and that can make it really challenging subject to look at uh, decision making. Yeah, and I think the decisions are the hard part actually you know, of, of the modeling. In in my practical engineering, I, I, I certainly omit the decision making process by using the pre-evacuation time distributions. And I guess that's the way how most of the fire safety engineers would, would deal with. And, and when you think about it from the perspective of individual decisions, I mean, and the individual decisions will be also driven by the personal experiences of people. And for example, if you have a person in, in your building that has uh, survived the fire in their life, they will act in a completely different manner from people who never experienced fire and can evacuate very, very quickly or can take some very different decisions. And this definitely does not fit into my ideal 60 to 180 second distribution of pre-evacuation time that um, I would be using. So, in fact, um, if we could uh, use these decision-making processes and implement them in, in the pre-evacuation modeling, uh, we could actually do pre-evacuation modeling instead of just simple uh, distributions. That, that, that could be a whole new level of, of evacuation modeling, in, in fact. And uh, today, what we're using is, is something very, very clever and very easy because the pre-evacuation distributions are are kind of like design fires or temperature time curves they, that are standardized. But uh, maybe in the future, when when we move into individual decision-making processes and and these aspects, we our modeling could be closer to reality. What's your take on that? Are we are we ready for decision-making modeling in, in pre-evacuation times? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a, a few things, I guess, to say about this. Um, when we model human behavior, um, it's quite a bit different to, say, modeling um, a, phys a physical-based system. Um, most of our models, say, in fire engineering, uh, CFD, structural fire engineering models, um, they're physics-based models, um, and they're based on physics-based reasoning, um, which we typically have quite a good idea of uh, certain values because we've done experiments, um, and we know perhaps what we don't know. Um, so known unknowns. Um, with human behavior, our um, known unknowns is much bigger. And we also have unknown unknowns. There's things that we perhaps can't know prior to doing our evacuation model. We can't know the exact number of people that are going to be in a building for a specific fire. Um, we can't know their past experience up until a certain point when the fire evacuation starts. So we have much bigger uh, variation 
um, within the uh, when we're considering evacuations. Um, and then there are kind of even if we have a complete understanding of human behavior and all the influences of decision making, there's always going to be this uh, uh, fairly sizable margin of variation. Um, so what that what that creates is an onus on the fire engineer to consider reasonable ranges of behavior. Um, so that we can do things like sensitivity testing um, and thinking about conservatism and saying, well, if we were if we do in a model for the worst case, does it work? Uh, and we we try and factor in and consider uncertainty through sensitivity testing or conservatism. Um, it's not necessary about when we run an evacuation model. We're not saying this is exactly what's going to happen for a specific fire. We're saying this is what could happen. Um, and we've done all these other scenarios saying this is also what could happen under different scenarios. Um, so that's how we kind of we need to manage uncertainty um, in that way. Oh, oh yeah, that, that's so good. That's so good. And do, do you think it will be possible to have an let's say decision making avatar in in the computer model that based on this let's say ranges of experiences or, or ranges of of outcomes of decision making could could take decisions on the fly and and we, we could actually track that in, in the simulation model. So so in the end we could run like thousands of simulations with uh, different decisions being taken in each of them to figure out not only the ranges of the evacuation times, but to, to, to identify the extreme scenarios in, in which some uh, extreme decisions were taken. And, and maybe these scenarios would be the most interesting ones to, to ask fire engineers, because that, that this would be the scenarios that we could actually act on uh, to minimize the risks in the building. I'm wondering if if it's already possible or or maybe it will be possible in in the future. I'm not sure of the current state of development and evacuation models, but yeah, I'm pretty sure you know. Yeah, so I would say that all evacuation models represent decision making in some way. Um, it's just the level of explicit representation it has in. Um, things that influence it. So it's, you know, right from your hand calculations to your computational evacuation models, all of them represent some level of decision making, which are based on some assumptions. Um, now, the real, the, real, uh, the real catch is how well does it do that? Um, how well does it capture what is actually going to happen? Um, and how much confidence can we derive from these models? Um, now, one issue I'd say is, first of all, Evacuation models um, are producing one result when they run a, run a scenario, but actually you could have different results because you may have different underlying conditions. Um, it's possible that you could get an evacuation model to just keep running lots and lots um, to brute force all your probability distributions. Um, now, for statistical purposes, that would produce, you know, a nice spread of data, um, and it might give you lots of a very good statistical precision. But actually, you might find that the underlying evacuation dynamics don't actually change very much. Um, so I think it's important when we think about evacuation models and using statistical distributions to represent our uncertainty with decision making, we have to think about what's actually happening in a simulation and not just focus on statistical precision uh, variability. Um, I think in the, I think we are getting better at modeling um, different decisions. Most evacuation models are based on some kind of uh, shortest time path route selection. Um, 
And I think the issue we're going to come up against is that evacuation model developers need to develop the functionality within their models to represent other types of route selection um, and decision making. For example, movement towards the familiar. Um, most evacuation models have this capability, but then we need data to support, well, how do we decide which exit is likely to be more familiar and to what extent? Um, so I think we need a bit of uh, more research in this area and development of not just collection of data for specific buildings, but developing generalized principles so the fire engineers know what data they can put into the model. Uh, from a practitioner's perspective, I think you've touched a critical aspect that every model has some sort of decision-making processes built within it, and they're usually related to, to the route selection, and that will be true even if you calculate your evacuation time on a piece of paper because you, you had to uh, figure out what path the occupants will take to calculate uh, the, the time they need to go through that. So... Um, in computer modeling, in, in computational evacuation modeling. And when you model these processes, when you model evacuation of people in buildings, sometimes these, uh, these models for decision making for route selection are, are sometimes very annoying because they will force people to go to the shortest path. And, and that's not necessarily the one that you would pick if you were exiting the building. So um, sometimes you, you have to really play a lot with these models to, to get a resulting distribution that resembles something that, that looks real. And um, yeah, it's difficult to tell what's, what is real, what's, what's, uh, what's an correct outcome. But, but sometimes it's just obvious that, that the shortest path uh, route uh, selection was, was just incorrect. And, and you can fix that by using familiarity concepts, like you mentioned. Uh, the way that, that they have implemented in the current software, they, they take a lot of effort from the modeler to, to actually play with them, to receive and apply outcome. Um, these models are either probability distribution functions for knowledge about the certain exit or, or, or distribution of what would an agent prefer and then, then just uh, randomly chooses the exit from the list of known exits to that agent. And I know there are models that, that also use some sort of local um, familiarity maps or, or local preference maps where the um, agent decides as, as they enter the compartment which which route they will pursue through that compartment without uh, maybe knowing the the path behind that compartment. So, so there's, that's another take. How, however complex these this models would be, they are usually relating the decisions to the movement of people. And uh, if, if you take a look at videos of evacuations in fires, um, there's plenty of actions that people take without movement or before they start moving. And yeah, as an engineer, this, um, these decisions could seem irrational, but if I think about myself uh, in a fire in a shopping mall or something, I, I would probably also take my phone and start a video incident instead of running for my life. So, so w when you think about yourself, it is stopping that irrational. I was wondering if this type of behavior, like non-movement actions that people take before they start evacuating, is this something that we also should include in, in the modeling? Or, or is it something that we can just comfortably hide within the pre-evacuation time distributions and safety margins and, and not worry about that at all? 
I think there are two parts to this. One is um, evacuation models are highly, highly sensitive to user inputs and user configuration. Um, so we should never say that an evacuation model told me this. It's very much the evacuation model user and the model together coming up with an answer and the user has to interpret what that means. Now that means that there's an increased reliance on the user for their competency and their understanding in human behavior. And indeed their understanding to recognize when the, what the model is telling them is perhaps not what is likely to happen. Um, so that's an important aspect, I think. Um, and actually what you've touched on there, I think is one of the motivations we wanted to look at biases because we we wanted to look at why do people make mistakes or perhaps behave in uh, a suboptimal behavior. Um, we generally know that people generally behave quite rationally during fire evacuations. It's just that the observer to a given behavior may not be fully aware of all the aspects of their decision making that are influencing it. So, for example, um, in the World Trade Center 9-11 attacks, a number of people jumped out um, the windows um, uh, to their deaths. Um, and a lot of people thought that was, you know, that was either an uh, an example of panic or irrational behavior. But if you put that in the context of they might have the prospect of being burnt alive at very high temperature fires, um, it, it seems slightly less irrational, shall we say. Um, so quite often when people label things as being irrational, it's often a reflection of the ignorance of the observer rather than it actually being something which is not logical. Talking about irrational decisions, one of my colleagues shared his experience from an evacuation drill. And in the drill, they, they had a woman who jumped out of a window on the first floor of that building during the, the drill. And it, it seems a very, very irrational decision. But actually, the woman had a um, traumatic history of, of fire in, in, in her life. And, and she was absolutely traumatized by the fact that she may be in a building that, that has a fire in it. So she, she taken the decision on the fly and the escaped uh, with, with the first exit uh, to the uh, outside that, that she saw. And when you consider everything, her experience, the potential consequences of a fire and whatever she went through, uh, and this decision stops being uh, saturational. And uh, I think that may be the case of, of many decisions being taken during the evacuation processes that we may not be aware of the underlying conditions that cost them. And yeah, as you said, it's, it's the, the ignorance is with the observer. And the another thing to, to consider when you do evacuation modeling, you see these realistic avatars walking around the building, giving the impression that it's truly the human behavior being modeled. Well, in the fact, it's just the, the movement process. And when you are in the fire, when you would be, when you would have to evacuate in the fire, there, there will be a lot of things that would matter to the, your ability to escape, including your experience, your training, maybe your preferences on, on how would you like to escape or maybe tasks that you have to complete before evacuating. So it's definitely way, way more complex than just calculating and modeling the movement of people, which I think would be fairly easy. And in the end, it's very hard to capture this complex process into a single value of required safe evacuation time, which arguably you're, you have to do as a fire safety engineer, because that's the most uh, 
used way to quantify safety. Yeah, I think um, I think you've touched on a few points there. Um, one is about uh, a visual realism of uh, avatars. Um, so one of the things we did was, as well as look at biases during fire evacuations, we decided to apply it to fire engineering as a as a discipline and say what biases fire engineers might exhibit. And then we extended that even further to looking at evacuation model biases, where we actually collected data. Um, we actually identified that a number, uh, there's a sizable proportion of fire engineers that believe that because the avatars look realistic, the underlying behavioral model is realistic, um, which is a bit worrying. Um, because we certainly know that evacuation models can look re- super realistic, um, but perhaps their models, uh, the underlying behavioral models are less uh, well validated. Um, so I think uh, we have to think about biases, not just in what people might do during fire evacuations, but also within fire engineering as well. Oh, wow, you must be reading my mind or, or my notes because you've kind of segued me to the second part of the interview I wanted to touch about the biases in engineering. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no worries, no worries. But let, let's stay on, on the human behavior still for, for a few minutes. So, so in the paper, and as usual, I will link the paper in the show notes for anyone who wants to find it. You've used a framework to, to structure the description of 15 uh, cognitive biases that are relevant to the fire evacuation. And the framework is called PADM, Protective Action Decision Model Classification. And within it, uh, you classify to which stage of the evacuation the bias is assigned to or, or to which combination of stages. And these are in pre-decision stage, the perception attentiveness or comprehension, and in decision-making stage, credibility, personalization, and action. Yeah, obviously, they are described in much more detail in the paper, so if anyone's interested, please please read up on that. But uh, I would like to hear from you, how the, did this framework work for you, and how this, this PADM method helped you um, distinguish the biases and, and actually structurize them? Sure. So um, the protective action decision model uh, was originally developed by uh, Lyndall Perry um, for more general purpose um, emergency incidents. And then uh, Erica Kuligowski is one of the co-authors, um, uh, developed that as part of a PhD thesis, looking at how we could apply it to uh, behavior during fire evacuations. Um, it's, made, it's largely focused, um, it doesn't have to be, but it's largely focused, a lot of the past work anyway, looking at the pre-evacuation phase. Um, the way we receive cues, the way we interpret them, and then we decide what to do. Um, and we thought this would be a really interesting um, framework um, to base to try and classify our behavior biases during fire evacuations um, because we wanted to see if there were one is how biases might be able to fit in with a broader theory of human behavior but also if there um, is there a way that we could see group certain biases together um, because whilst we've classified these biases um, within the paper um, according to different types of um, example behavior um, in reality, there's lots of overlap between some of these biases as well. So we wanted to try and – it's a bit of a spaghetti of um, decision-making. So we're trying to classify things to help make it easier for us to identify trends. Yeah, from, from this episode, I doubt that anyone will be able to 
directly implement the, the biases in their uh, everyday engineering, but that was never the goal. I, I think the goal of this podcast is to um, have people understand the results of their modeling better and, and gain new insight on what is happening within their evacuation modeling. And I, I really hope the modelers will, will, will use that knowledge to interpret their, their results better. I hope that firefighters will understand better what's happening during the fire evacuations in buildings. And, and I hope maybe architects or designers could use the knowledge in here to shape the buildings in a way that promotes uh, a good decision-making process in, in the fire evacuation. So from your paper, I've listed three uh, biases that I would like to discuss. But first, maybe, well, maybe that's a silly question, but do, do you have a favorite bias or two that you would like to, to bring up? And then I'll, I'll let you know which, which three I've chosen. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, going back to what you originally you first said before, um, I think we're trying to highlight that people might not behave in an optimal way. Um, and I know that when we're doing hand calcs or evacuation models, there's a lot of assumptions which are quite optimal. So hopefully this is a poke in a direction to say, look, people might not behave in this amazing, um, you know, uh, considered way. Um, in terms of if I have any favorite biases, um, I would say... Some of them were quite interesting. I think biases provide a means to look at behavior which we already know exists, but in a different way. Um, so, for example, we know, we've know we known for a little while that people move towards the familiar. People will move towards a familiar exit. Um, but some of these biases perhaps suggest why they do that. So one is that it's more salient in memory, and that comes down to something called availability bias. You're more likely to choose something which is more readily available in your mind. This is why marketing and marketing has adverts all over your city um, advertising products. It doesn't mean you're going to go and buy it, but you'll be more familiar with it. Therefore, you're more likely to consider buying it. Um, so you could, you could we can frame that as an availability bias. Um, it will also be framed as something called default bias. Often we make a decision once, perhaps when we first encounter a situation, and then we stop making the decision. It happens by default. Um, so it's a default bias. So when you go out your door um, of your office every day, um, you don't think about it. It just happens by default. So that forms a default bias. Um, so some of, some of them we've tried to identify uh, new perhaps types of behavior that might be worth looking at. But also we've looked at ways of saying this is a new way you can look at the behavior we know exists already. Yeah, the default bias was also on top of my list. Uh, and uh, I think it's very profound to uh, everyday evacuation modeling. And uh, also to the way how engineers work, but that will touch in, in just a few minutes. Um, so when when you learn uh, evacuation modeling, you, you are often being taught this concept of familiarity that people will rather choose a familiar exit, preferably the one they have entered the building uh, through, and uh, previously in the talk, I've mentioned that sometimes I, I see people move in an incorrect way. And uh, often this is manifested by people choosing some, let's say, obscure exits. Uh, imagine you're being in the middle of a shopping mall. And in, instead of choosing the main entrance to the mall, you would enter a, a shop and then a, a warehouse behind that shop and then exit through some narrow passage in the back door of, of that shop. 
So, um, of course, if one or two people do that, 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 that could happen, but not the majority of people being in the mall. They, they would not choose this, this exit normally. And, and this, uh, previously, when, when I saw this behavior, I, I've connected it with the familiarity of exits. So when I saw this behavior, it, it seemed not natural because the people were unfamiliar with that exit. But now after this talk, I will look at this kind of behavior through the biases, the, Availability and default biases that uh, people will lean towards choosing the, the default option, and that, that's the main exit. So, as as you mentioned, the biases are not only ways to to take decisions, but are also means to understand the behavior we already knew and we already saw in our modeling. The other one that I wanted to discuss was the halo effect, which is related to how actions of one person influence the choices of, of the other people. And uh, two evacuation experiments come to my mind. The first one was related to um, road uh, tunnel ex evacuation experiments. I, I don't recall the names of the authors, but I, I remember it was about tunnels in Brussels. And the other one is a study on evacuation of a cinema. And I, I think that was done by Lovraglio and Ronke. And, and in both of these studies, they investigated multiple scenarios. And there was a certain scenario or scenarios in which first person took the decision to evacuate fairly early in the in the study and this these scenarios were the ones with the shortest pre-evacuation time so definitely the, the the decision of the first person has heavily influenced the decision making process of the others and now now i can look on that uh, through the halo bias yeah so i think um there's a few things there um we have we know that we have something called bandwagon bias where people the surrounding population if they start doing it you're more likely to do that do do something similar um the the whole thing about also default effect is also if you ask someone to perhaps use a stair they've never used before that presents an uncertain option um and people don't tend to want to choose uncertainty when they need to get out of a building um so there's a lot of I think what we've what we're trying to what we've tried to do here is list some of the potential um, biases, and then we've given examples. There may be other examples um, that they may that these may occur also. Um, and I guess what we're hoping is that when decision fire evacuation decision research is conducted, that um, people researchers might want to consider well, how could I frame this in terms of a bias happening, um, which hopefully could lead to some interesting things. And the last one that has called my mind was the planning fallacy, which is the tendency to underestimate the time necessary to finish a, a task. And in, in terms of evacuation, it, it could also be you know, like when you, you have a person in a building, they may underestimate the time required to exit that building because they will be biased. Uh, by the time that it takes to walk to the exit and then you just exit, right? But what people do not know and we modelers do know is that the evacuation time is often driven by the queue formation and the wait time at the exits because if there's too many people at one exit, the queue will form and not everyone can immediately use that door. So uh, a person might severely underestimate the time necessary to get out from an exit. Or when you're in a tall building and you have never used the staircase, you may very, very severely underestimate the time necessary to walk down from a tall floor in, in your building. Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, I work on floor 37 here in Shanghai and it takes me less than, and it, work, it takes me less than a minute to get to my floor using uh, the lifts. Um, now I know, um, because obviously, obviously my 
profession, uh, I know it's going to take me a very long time to go down the stairs. But a lot of other people may think, well, it takes me only one and a half minutes. That might bias them to think, they know they're going to take longer, but it might bias them to think of a lower number. So there might be an anchoring effect here of how long they expect to take to evacuate. Now, the issue might not, the real challenge here might not be it takes them longer. It might actually mean that they take longer to decide to evacuate because they think, oh, I can get out the building quickly. So whilst certain biases might affect certain types of behavior, it can have a knock-on effect on other types of behavior. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, that's what I meant. It's not that uh, it will take longer to, to exit through that exit because there's a queue. I mean, we account for that. that that's exactly what we model with our computational evacuation modeling. And uh, that's what we're used to as, as the you know, fire engineers. But uh, as, as a user of the building, when they are unaware that a queue will form and it will have an increased time to, to exit the building through, an, through a door, um, they, they may delay the decision to evacuate. And that's something that's, that could be potentially very dangerous. And the same, the same goes for the evacuation from through the staircases of high-risk building. People may just evacuate later because they think it, it does not take that much time to, to exit the building. And out of curiosity, have you ever taken the stairs? Did you try out how, how long it takes to evacuate? So um, every building or every high-rise building needs to do an evacuation drill every year. Um, now, by strange, absolute coincidence, I've been, I mean, I've been in Shanghai five and a half years now. I've never been in the building when they've done it. Um, total coincidence. I want, I, I, I almost want, I want to be here, um, but I've always been traveling on business or something else. Um, I have walked down my apartment floor, which I'm on floor 20. I have done that. Um, and that, uh, that was at late at night. Um, I was the first one out. Luckily, I'd be a bit embarrassed if I wasn't. Um, and uh, that 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 took a long time. I remember this one time when we were in a, we were commissioning a high rise building in Warsaw, and we ended up very very late in the evening. Actually, it was some, some something closer to the middle of the night, and because the lift was operated by an operator due to safety reasons, it was still a building under construction. So, so there was literally a driver of the lift who, who was pressing the floor buttons and had the key to start the elevator. Um, the elevator was sadly unavailable and we were stuck there at the 30th floor. So yeah, we, we had to walk down and uh, and as the pain in my legs built, I, I had more and more reflections on the difficulties of the evacuation processes of, of high-rise buildings. Absolutely. So in one of your talks, I had this aha moment when, I, when I've listened to it. Uh, many things that we discuss here is something that I'm already, let's say, familiar with, this system one, system two and thinking and stuff like that. I've learned that from, from a different source. I mean, I read and enjoy Kahneman's books as well. But for me, the, the source of knowledge in, in this field was the uh, learning how to learn course on, on Coursera platform. And there's also a companion book called The Mind of Numbers that uh, by Barbara Oak which I highly recommend to anyone. Um, anyway, um, uh, as, as this, uh, let's say, biases and, uh, and this, the way how decisions are taken was, uh, let's say, something more, more close to me, more understandable by me, you've mentioned the concept of nudging, which is uh, a way to push a person towards a certain decision in a way that the person may not be aware of. And that was the aha moment. Uh, I mean... If we could use this knowledge and biases and knowledge how decisions are taken to actually influence how people take the decisions during an evacuation time in a way that 
could promote good decisions or optimal decisions in terms of the evacuation behavior, that's that's something we can work with. That's that's uh, a way to turn this, let's say, abstract discussion into tools and devices that could actually improve the evacuation process. So, so I, I find this really fascinating. Uh, so, can can you please explain more uh, about this concept of nudging? Sure. So um, following on from looking at biases, we then thought, well, how can we make people or increase the chance of people making better decisions during fire evacuations? Um, and uh, I think the paper doesn't go into too much detail, but we certainly talked about it amongst amongst the team. Um, so the, the concept of nudge, uh, just to define what these are, uh, typically a nudge is a low cost method which increases the chances of someone making a given decision. Um, it doesn't force someone to make a given decision um, where you just say you have to use a given one exit, for example. Um, it trying to nudges them in a certain direction. So it maintains freedom of choice. Um, so one way we could possibly do this is um, things like um, – there's something called the theory of learned irrelevance. Um, so when people use buildings, um, they don't need to use the emergency exits. They don't need to use emergency signage. So your brain learns to ignore this information. That class does noise. I don't need to use that. I'll carry on. The problem is during a fire evacuation, um, someone might actually need to use an emergency exit, but their brain hasn't been keeping track of you know where they are. They've deliberately forgot uh, got them. So one thing we could think about doing is things like, um, and this type of thing, of course, requires studying. I'm not suggesting everyone goes out and designs this in their buildings. Um, but an interesting area of research for nudges would be to look at things like um, dynamic signage during normal operation. Um, so, for example, uh, you have flashing lights which occasionally go off um, in the middle of the day or whatever, um, and that just no people it just catches someone's eye. They look at it and they go, "Oh, that's the emergency exit," and they carry on. Um, there's been research looking at dynamic signage, flashing lights during fire evacuations. But if we can get people to take notice of these during normal usage, then when or if a fire evacuation does occur, this hopefully will nudge them into remembering where these are. That's an example. I think it's, it's similar to the uh, information boards in road tunnels where uh, when you're driving, you, you see these uh, light boards uh, above, the, above the road that say stick to the right lane or, or something. And uh, actually when, when something happens, uh, the information is presented on them. So you actually recognize that the information would be there and you would seek information at them. And... Um, and the same goes for, for evacuation uh, signs. I mean, they, they convey the messages. However, in normal use, um, I think as you mentioned in, before in the talk, uh, you get uh, too, too familiar about them and um, your brain forgets that they are there. They become the part of the background. And well, when you would be in a emergency mode and you would seek information, you may actually uh, find the information at them and you would seek them. <laughs> yeah, the, the cool thing about being a fire engineer is that you know they will be there. If the building was built to a standard, it means it had a... It has a proper evacuation signage, even if your brain chooses to not pick the information when you're just walking by. Um, I was also wondering if the concept of nudging could be used in, in 
let's say voice alarm or conveying the, the the voice messages in the building it was something that always intrigued me if there is any uh, any best way to present uh, information in the voice alarm uh, that it's it's short it conveys the message and in, it, it makes people really start evacuating I, I wonder if if it's something that you you've researched of, or you know uh, research about that yeah absolutely i think um there's been a lot of research into uh, human behavior and alarm fire alarm messaging um which i think definitely could uh benefit from considering things like uh, nudges um and the biases so for example um we know that if someone were to say uh, we know that through authority bias people are more likely to follow the instructions of someone in a in a position of authority um so that could be one thing to consider within the message within alarm messaging yeah definitely that that's the place to start uh, i also wondered if this same concept could be applied to something like dynamic signage to like uh, use nudging to to make people follow the dynamic science more accurately, and actually dynamic signage is a very fascinating field of evacuation. And I, I wonder if you have any first experience with that, or or maybe you, you know someone who who did and can comment on on this aspect. Yeah, so um, where I did my PhD at the University of Greenwich in the Fire Safety Engineering Group um, under Professor Ed Gallia, um, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Xie Hui, um, his PhD was all about um, looking at signage and specifically looking at the impact of dynamic signage. Um, I was lucky enough to help out with some of those uh, drills, um, but I'd highly encourage anyone to have a look at that um, that research. Um, they're absolutely fascinating, um, and they they looked at the impact of signage um, on. Uh, non-disabled and disabled people as well um, because people with uh, visual impairments um, behave uh, differently to those without um, and it, it, one of the fascinating findings if I remember correctly was um, just on the base premise um, something a very very high proportion of people do not even notice the signs uh, emergency signage when they've been asked to evacuate um, I think it was around the 70% mark um, so that's just normal signage um, so that's a huge number of people, um, a proportion of people, um, potentially ignoring the thing which, as designers, we're relying on to get them to a place of safety. So, so I feel very comfortable knowing that they will be there and the, the information will be there when I need it. However, if I was just a person, not a fire safety engineer, and I didn't know that the evacuation signs must be there or maybe forgotten about the, the fact that they are everywhere, uh, I maybe would not seek that information on the signs, which uh, would prevent me from getting the information of, of which route to exit to pursue. And uh, yeah, the, you also mentioned that the flashing dynamic signage uh, on the normal use could could help uh, people remember they are there and that, that's definitely a way. Um, I've asked you the, the question about the dynamic signage uh, because in, in Poland, in my country, this is a technological trend that, that comes to many new buildings because uh, people like to use it to, to offset for some other, let's say, missing technologies in, in fire safety in, in Poland. You can sometimes use countermeasures if you cannot provide a certain feature of, of fire safety. You can maybe countermeasure it with other ones. And when it comes to dynamic signage, I'm often being asked if there really is an added value to that, if, if it uh, really makes a difference um, between uh, normal signage and dynamic one when it comes to an evacuation. 
but yeah, you've answered that already, and you, you did actually in the most preferred way in this podcast by listing a research item to to read up on, and I will link it in the show notes. And yeah, I really appreciated that my guests share the resources, and uh, this becomes a reference point to, to seek new knowledge for the listeners. So yeah, I, I hope the listeners enjoy it as well. So um, now let's jump into the second part, which I've teased already at least twice, um, the biases in engineering. So in, in one of your talks, you've went beyond uh, cognitive biases in evacuation. You've actually discussed the biases of engineering. Uh, so you've jumped from the evacuation into the way how evacuation is designed and investigated. Uh, what are the biases that influence the design? And uh, I found it as interesting as the biases in the evacuation processes as well. Um, could you please uh, tell us more about that? I know it also included a very, very interesting survey on the use of evacuation models. Yeah, so um, for, I think for, for me it was a natural progression to say, well, we've looked at human behavior and biases in evacuations. Um, what about fire engineers themselves? And it, it part born out of um, my, I think, what I could see happening perhaps in the wider field of fire engineering. I think, well, maybe there's a, we could apply the same principles to fire engineering. Um, so we originally put together a paper and we came up um, with some biases. And we then tried to classify the biases according to when they occurred. Um, so we looked at biases which are associated with the use of fire codes or regulations, uh, biases which occurred due to mo in modeling and calculations. We also looked at probabilistic risk assessment assessments, um, biases in general engineering practice, and then perceptions based on experience. Um, that's how we kind of classified things. Um, and this kind of, uh, after, I mean, this is after we've done it, but um, we're also thinking this is, forms an integral part of um, quite a hot topic in fire engineering at the moment, which is about competencies. Um, how do we decide if a fire engineer is competent um, in, in some fashion. And we thought the biases are obviously ways you can potentially make mistakes. So this forms part of um, the competency discussion, as it were. You mentioned that biases lead to mistakes, but also in one of your talks, you've said that some biases could lead to, uh, let's say, a more safe outcome. And an example was the use of conservative default values in, in software, because the users uh, tend to use the default values if they do not have uh, better values of their own or they do not will to invest in, in, in researching better values for, for the particular design task they're doing. They, they rely to the, the default values and then this would lead to a total more conservative outcome of their simulation or analysis. And uh, maybe it may not correlate necessarily to more safety, but the, the, the outcomes will definitely be conservative. So, so here's an example of how, how biases can actually have a positive outcome on, on the results of engineering. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can actually use the fact that you know people exhibit bias to get them to do something that's positive. Um, it just so happens that there's probably more negative things can happen because people aren't aware. Um, because normally biases reflect a lev some level of ignorance or over-focus on one, one piece of information at the expense of another. Um, now, the biases are basically a negative aspect in the decision-making process, um, but the end result could still be positive. Um, in episode three of this podcast, uh, I had Gabriel Levinia from GVVA, and he mentioned that in version four of FTS, 
there was a default reaction that had very low soot yield value, which defines how much smoke you generate while burning something in, in your numerical model. And uh, because it was the default reaction, many people were using it for simulations of fires in buildings. And, and uh, because of that, they've received outputs that were very unrealistic because they had very, very low amount, low amount of smoke in, in their simulations. So, so that's an example of how an under-conservative default can cause uh, actually uh, errors in, in, in modeling. And it's obviously not uh, something uh, for the FDS uh, developers to, to put the shame on because they, they've developed a beautiful piece of software. It was just the users that were unaware that the default is unapplicable to their scenario. So, so here changing the default value to something else can actually lead to, to a more safer outcomes in the hands of an experienced user. And uh, yeah, we, we must consider that there will be some unexperienced users using the, the models. Um, earlier in the talk, you've mentioned a lot of managing uh, uncertainties and one of the ways is to run multiple simulations. And that was also one of the questions in your survey where you've asked uh, if people run just a single scenario for the evacuation or they run multiple scenarios and if they do multiple, how they pick the number of the scenarios, do they use convergence criteria or they just use a certain number of, of uh, runs uh, predetermined in, in their previous experience. And I'm actually in, in that last group. Maybe, maybe I should move to some convergence-based <laughs> uh monitoring of, of my results. But uh, I'm, I'm really curious about that aspect of the survey. Could you comment about that? Yeah, so I think um, the interesting thing about the evacuation modeling biases survey um, was that we, uh, we, we initially set out to look at biases in three areas. One was research, one was development, and one was the application by fire engineers. Um, so we, we proposed some biases that my uh, researchers even might exhibit during research into fire evacuations, how the developers themselves might exhibit some biases, and then the, the um, fire engineers. And then we thought, well, let's do a survey to try and quantify um, or identify to what extent these may actually occur. Um, so... It was it was really interesting seeing where some of the biases occur, but also where they don't occur, which was actually quite reassuring. Um, and also the reasons why you might think something is a bias, but actually it's it's imposed behavior. So, for example, we thought that there was a bias to do with model selection. People will be biased to choose a given model that they're more familiar with. Um, but it turns out that a lot of people, their company only buys one model and they're kind of imposed to use it. So whilst there is a bias to use a given model, it's not through ignorance of consideration. It's through to the situations being imposed upon them. Um, in terms of specifically um, looking at the number of repeat simulation runs, um, most people said actually they would run multiple runs, which is really reassuring. It's only about 13% which said they would only run one run. Um, and then you could see there was a, a reasonable spread and in terms of uh, the methods they would use to choose the number of repeat simulation runs. Um, there's no right or wrong answer with this question because the, the, the jury is still out on the best method to determine the number of repeat simulation runs. So the survey wasn't just uh, trying to identify biases, it was trying to identify what are people currently doing in the field as well. And in the survey, did you ask about the decision process modeling, if people are using it, or maybe they are thinking uh, that, that they are using it, but they're not really doing that? Were, were there any questions related to that? 
Um, one of the things we did ask was, uh, would you run multiple scenarios looking at um, different things happening in the evacuation process? So, for example, if exits were blocked, um, if uh, different proportions of people used the exits, things like that. Um, most people, um, most of the respondents said that they would look at different multiple scenarios. Um, and the most common reasons were looking at stairs being blocked. They looked at the impact of demographic groups and the different impacts of pre-evacuation times. So looking at different scenarios is one way you can look at differences in um, decision making. Um, because different things are happening or you're representing different things. Um, so this was actually a really good sign. Um, most people would run more than one scenario. Yeah, that is certainly reassuring. And I think it comes down to the fact that, uh, again, how we are learned to do the fire engineering and, and we are learned to avoid systems which create a single point failure mechanism that uh, a single point failure can create catastrophical outcomes, which... Um, in evacuation could could be caused by the only exit route being blocked and doing these multiple scenarios to um, block different routes to seek if uh, a scenario occurs in which such a blockade can have a very, very onerous effects. It's, it's very powerful because uh, you are truly investigating the vulnerabilities of the building and and then you can act on them and, and fix them and I think that's the ultimate goal of being the fire engineer, to, to find uh, the weak spots of the building and fix them and uh, prevent catastrophic fires from, from happening. Um, um, touching a bit on that, I wanted to move to tall building evacuations and super tall building evacuation procedures. Um, because of the way how the buildings are designed, the uh, staircase capacity, the exit door capacity is usually connected to the amount of people on, on one or maybe two or three floors together, not uh, the, the whole population of the, of the whole building. And uh, this leads to an obvious uh, consequence that if you evacuate the whole building through the same staircase and you have the maximum number of users, it, it will take a very long time to evacuate and the people will be queued in the staircase for, for a very, very long time. And this is something we deal with, in, in my case, using concepts of phased evacuation, in which you evacuate building floor by floor, maintaining the capacity of the evacuation routes and, and minding for the amount of people that are in the staircase at the same time to not have too many people queued there. So, so people do not wait uh, for their turn uh, to, to, to use the staircase and, and exit the building. And it, it, this leads to much more optimized evacuation process. And uh, in my opinion, just much less stressful evacuation process. However, when we face the authorities or firefighters, they usually want us to showcase the like total evacuation of the building. Uh, I think it, it is in a way connected to their perception that uh, the people are only safe when they are out and that uh, you want to have them all out as soon as possible. And in fact, uh, the total evacuation may yield a shorter total evacuation time, but at the cost of people waiting on the staircase for their turn to, to run away. So I was wondering if anything of our today's discussion of the biases and the, the concepts and, and how people take decisions, if anything of this could be used to to, uh, to 
convince the authorities or firefighters that maybe the phased evacuation could be a much safer way to to rescue people in the building? Yeah, this is an interesting question. Um, so specifically for me, because I work in China, um, it's interesting to know that any super high-rise building, so that's any building over 250 meters, um, you have to build an evacuation model of a full simultaneous building evacuation. Um, there's no acceptance criteria. Um, but you have to build one and show how long it would take to fully clear simultaneously. Um, you mean like a total evacuation from top exactly. to the bottom, everyone out, yeah? Exactly, or everyone at the same time. In fact, I've, I've recently, I've, I commonly do them. Um, and often you can employ lift, lifts as part of the process, which we encourage, especially with um, facilitating evacuation of persons with reduced mobility. Um and as you've rightly said, um, the main what we're trying to achieve when we do phased evacuation is we want to get people. It's not just about the total evacuation time. It's about getting people who are most exposed to the fire away from the fire as quickly as possible. Now, if you evacuate the whole building at the same time, um, that could mean the people on the fire floor or the fire affected floors are going to take longer to get into the protected escape routes. Um, so this is one of the reasons um, that you have this phased evacuation. Another reason reason is that most fires are not going to be very big. Um, if you've got working, uh, well-maintained fire systems, um, then the fire won't spread. So um, if you don't ask the whole building to evacuate, that aids in things like business continuity as well. Um, now, especially if you're talking about certain businesses which have huge net worths, such as banks um, and things like that, um, it's it's serious amounts of money. And you have to think, as fire engineers, obviously life safety is paramount, but we're also considering uh, business continuity um, and business resilience and impact as well. Um, so that's one of the reasons that we look, um, uh, we generally typically adopt phased evacuations. It is more complicated. It does put more um, onus on building management um, and the, you know, the fire service to, to orchestrate the process. Um, but that's one, that's one of the reasons we adopt that. Uh, I was more thinking about how to use biases to understand uh, the decision makers' processes and uh, the the way why they force us to the uh, total evacuation. But you bring a lot of valid points in in, in that, uh, and I think they're they're very useful to consider. Um, I think it also relates to this concept of perception of safety uh, and what, what, what's perceived as safe and what truly is safe. I mean, having a few thousand people on a staircase generating heat and being uh, like clamped into in a small confined space, it's, it's not something that I would consider safe. And then again, you may consider some of these people were not even endangered by the fire, which wasn't going on a completely different floor. And maybe it was a very small fire that was already under control, but they're, they're suddenly stuck on the, on the staircase. And yeah, I, I think this goes uh, far, far beyond our discussion of on biases. But uh, I mean, you're an engineer in Shanghai, so who can have more experience with tall buildings than you. Um, how do you deal with the, this kind of things in your general engineering practice? Maybe you've participated in a drill of evacuating a huge skyscraper. Yeah, it's. I think um, most of my work is involved in the design process of new builds. Um, so quite often, when the drills are happening, um, we've already um, we've already been involved in the design process. Um, but I've certainly been involved in evacuation drills within China, um, and I've I've seen other researchers do work in high rise buildings. Um, generally, when when the drills happen, um, generally people 
not too many people, I would say, become injured. Um, now that uh, certainly not recorded as being injured, I would say, and that doesn't mean they don't they don't happen. Um, we know that one of the biggest causes of accidents and injuries, even death, in just in your everyone's life is through slips, trips, and falls. Um, now, the minute you start asking people to go vertically, tra- um, traveling vertically, then you're increase, you're at more risk. Um, and there are certain demographics which are more uh, susceptible to risk. So the uh, old, or very old um, or the very young. Um, so certainly buildings where if your office buildings typically perhaps at a younger population, um, perhaps they'll have a lower chance of injury, but where you have anywhere where you might have an increased elderly um, population or young population, um, then there, there is even more of a risk of slips, trips and falls. This is going into such an interesting direction, but um, I'm really mindful of your time and I think we have to end around in here. But let's let's keep this discussion open for for the next time, and we definitely need to come back to skyscraper fire safety and maybe the fire safety in in China in general. Um, I'm very thankful that you took the invitation to the podcast episode and all the things that you've shared with with my audience. Um, if people would like to connect with you or learn more about your research, where, where should they seek information? Where, where can they find you? Uh, I think probably on Twitter. Um... We can perhaps include a link of my uh, Twitter account, um, and I generally try to k- keep that updated with any research. And also, I post things about just quirky things that happen in China, which don't necessarily happen in the fire safety world around, you know, around the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, I'll drop the links in the show notes, and I'll also link all the discussed papers and research studies that we have mentioned through the episode, so the listeners have an easier way to find them. So, um, Mike, once again, thank you so much for joining me at the podcast. Thanks a lot. Yep, thanks and see you around. And that's it. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed that a lot. Uh, I certainly did. And as you probably noticed at the end of the talk, uh, I could discuss evacuation with Michael uh, for ages. And there's just so much you can learn from him. And his extreme experience in this field is unimaginable. I hope I'll I'll be able to get him uh, once again in the podcast to maybe discuss some more practical aspects of evacuation modeling and designing buildings for a safe evacuation of people. In regards to the theme of the episode, the biases and uh, how decisions are taken, I I hope we've shared some really good insight. And more importantly, uh, we've discussed in depth how these decisions impact our predictions, our modeling, our calculations, and the way how we design buildings for the safe evacuation of people. Of course, to know more and understand how these biases impact our uh, design processes, you, you should know all the biases that Mike has identified and to do that, I highly recommend um, reading his paper that's linked in the show notes or maybe watching some of his um, lectures that are available on YouTube. And from this, you will learn more about particular biases. In, in the episode, I, I wanted to put the focus on the reasons why you should do that, not the biases themselves. So I hope this is a starting point. And I hope this this form is, is appropriate for the podcast if 
If not, please let me know. I'm still experimenting with it. And the last thing that I wanted to share is something that Mike said in the green room before we, we started the interview. And actually, that was pretty interesting. He mentioned that when he discussed the subject of biases, heuristics with, with his colleagues, with, with other researchers in the field, he expected that people will be like, no, Mike, that's silly. Um, why would you Why would you investigate such a thing? These this are not uh, serious research topics. But it was quite opposite when, when he mentioned that to people. The reactions were that people really think that, that, yeah, this is how I actually think. This is how I take decisions. These are the things that impact my own decisions. I can see by myself that if I was in such a situation, I would act in, in a similar way. And uh, I must say that when he said that, I, I had the exact same um, feeling that, yeah, these biases, they pretty well describe my own behavior and the way how I take decisions. So if they are correct in predicting my behavior, they, they actually may be correct in predicting behavior of multiple people. And once you couple that with multiparametric simulations, with Monte Carlo simulations, with thousands of analysis of different behaviors, and you suddenly emerge into a whole new world of modeling in, in which you have such a broader overview uh, on the outcomes of your evacuation modeling. And I'm not just talking about finding the extreme values of the evacuation time related to your pre-evacuation time distribution. No, no. I'm talking about finding scenarios in which particular tree of decision has resulted in, in a catastrophic outcome. And actually, if we are able to find such scenarios, we can act on that and we can build safer buildings based on that. And on top of that, the concept of nudging, of affecting the decisions subconsciously, uh, making sure that people are more likely to, to make decisions with a favorable outcome. That's such a powerful tool that I'm not sure if we have used so far, and, and we definitely should, especially that it can be used by non-fire specialists like architects, system designers, lighting designers. All these people can, can use the concept of nudging to, to design buildings which guide the person to safety in a more efficient way. So, yeah, that's, that's quite a lot to unpack. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and you will enjoy your reading. And that's before you, uh, because you really should uh, take a look at the paper of cognitive biases. And yeah, that's all from my side today. And see you next Wednesday in episode 10 of the Fire Science Show. Thank you for being here. Cheers. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.